Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Expectation. Even though Esau is not of the covenant, the fact that they were a brother to Jacob, there's an expectation that if you're family, you look after family. And instead of looking after Jacob, Esau took advantage of what the Babylonians did to Jacob. Verse 14. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. So there were some Jews that were trying to escape. Esau interfered with their escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As you have done, it shall be done unto you. So the very thing that Esau did to Jacob, this is now the punishment that is going to happen to Esau in the day of the Lord. Your reward shall return upon your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yes, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. So Esau now is now wrapped up with the heathen and will be destroyed with the heathen. Notice now verse 21. And saviors, plural, shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So we know, brethren, that when Christ returns, the saints will be with him. And these are the saviors. This is, this is the, what we're striving to be a part of, this first resurrection, so that we can help Christ implement his judgment. Now the question for us becomes, what is our character? Are we developing the character of Christ so that we can be with Christ and be here in verse 21, the saviors that come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau? Will we be the judges of Esau? And will, will we be part of this ingathering process? Well, I think the question becomes, how do we treat our brother? So we see this, the, the judgment that God is bringing down on Edom, bringing down on Esau because of how he treated his brother. And now we, our brothers, we, we are part of this uh, covenant community. The question now is, how do we treat her? We can see from this prophecy the expectation God has of how family should treat family. And so if we're going to be included here in verse 21 as the saviors that help implement God's judgment, I think the question we have to ask is, how do we treat our brother? How do we behave toward our brother? Because that's what God is looking for. So let's now see. We've seen what's happening to Assyria, the heathen, the enemies of God. We've seen here what happens to Edom, the brother of Jacob. Now, let's look at Jerusalem, the people of God, with Jerusalem symbolizing God's people. Let's look at the judgment for Jerusalem. And to do that, let's look at the minor prophet, Zephaniah. Let's go to Zephaniah.
Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, and then it gives us his genealogy here, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. So we see that Hezekiah was a righteous king, and Zephaniah is actually showing his descendancy is from Hezekiah. And his prophecy came to him, his vision came to him, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we'll remember Josiah, I believe he was nine years old when he took the throne. And he was one of the righteous kings in Judah. He came um, after, I believe it was Manasseh, and helped to turn the kingdom back to God. He basically cut down all the high places, rooted out all of the uh, pagan worship that was in Israel, and was part of this big reformation to bring the nation back to God. even went up to the north country, to Israel, to invite them to come down and keep the Passover with Judah and turn back to God. So this is in these days, the days of this reformation, that Zephaniah has this prophecy. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Lord. So this is the day of trumpets. This is the return of Christ. This is what we will be celebrating very shortly. But it is not all happy, happy, happy. There is this uh, unruliness in the world that God is coming to crush. And he says here, through Zephaniah, he will utterly consume all things from off the land. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, says the Lord. I will also stretch out my hand, notice this, upon Judah. Judah represents God's people. God is coming to his people. And what we see here is there's a judgment on the earth, and Judah is not excluded. In other words, take no comfort in being called God's people. God's people is no special protection. Just because we're covenant people does not protect us from the wrath of God. So here's this wrath that's going to slay utterly man and beast, oh, and, and Judah as well. The wrath of God is on Judah as well. I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of Chemerims with the priests. For there's false worship here in Judah and God has had it. His, his patience has run out. And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. And them that worship and swear by the Lord that swear by Malcolm. So by extension, being called the church of God should be no comfort to us if we're allowing false worship to come into the church. If our standards are lowering, if we're beginning to adopt pagan practices and bring them into the church, we can't just say, well, we're the church of God, we're the people of God, it's all good, let's celebrate, Feast of Trumpets is coming, let's celebrate. I think we ought to be very, 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 very nervous to say God is coming to utterly destroy man and beast and his own people are not excluded if they are involved in false worship. And then verse 6, 
that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. So this is, this is not new. This is basically human beings behave the same. And here these are the privileged people of God and they were behaving a certain way. And here we are today, the privileged people of God. Why should we expect to behave any differently? So we do need to be careful and take this warning. Verse 7. Hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God. So there's a lot of, lot of talk, a lot of back talk. You know what? Be quiet at the presence of the, of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. So again, this is talking specifically and exclusively of the people of God. And not even the king's children are an exception to God's wrath, nor the princes, or any that are clothed with strange apparel. And I think it's not a stretch to say in the church of God, some are clothed in strange apparel. Some of us are not, we, we, we take no thought at adopting practices that are pagan, that are strange to God. And this is, what God, this, is, this is God's attitude towards those that are clothed with strange apparel. Verse 9. In the same day also, I will punish all those that leap on the threshold. So this is certainly speaking of some sort of pagan worship, where they would leap on the threshold. God is saying, I'll punish all of them. And which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. Howl, you inhabitants, inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles. So Jerusalem, again, is symbolic of the people of God. And God is going to be so thorough in his search of Jerusalem, he will, he will use candles. He will light it up to see what's here, what is really here. So there will be an examination of Jerusalem before the, the return of Christ. And in this examination, I will then punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, the Lord will do no good, will not do good, neither will he do evil. And again, this is an attitude. This is speaking of an attitude. And the question is, do we see this attitude in the church? Do we see an attitude, well, God doesn't really care. It doesn't matter to God. Whether we do this or that, God, God is okay with everything. If that's the attitude, God is saying, that's an attitude I'm going to correct. That's not an attitude that I want to see in my people. Verse 13. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord, verse 14, is near. It is near and hastens greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord 
the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. Again, there's going to be such overwhelming force. The mighty man is going to cry like a baby. That day, so this day that we'll be celebrating shortly, this day, this day of trumpets, is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. So this is reality. This is something that we have to face, that, that God is dealing with attitudes that are difficult, that are arrogant, and there's going to be this overwhelming force to put it down. And these attitudes are not just in Assyria. They're not just in Edom. They're in Jerusalem. They're, they're, these attitudes are in with the people of God. And so there's no exception. Verse 17. I will bring distress upon men, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and their flesh as the dung. And then he goes on, if you look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, he then deals with Moab and Ammon and talks about the judgment against them. In verse 13, he then goes on to talk about Assyria again and how he'll just deal with Assyria. And then let's drop down to chapter 3 and verse 1 where he returns to Jerusalem. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city, speaking of Jerusalem. She obeyed not the voice, she received not correction, she trusted not in the Lord, she drew not near to her God. So these are, these are difficult scriptures when God is dealing with his own people and, and using such strong language. But I think for us, if we are humble, we can look at this and take warning and say, okay, being among the people of God is not a license to do as we please. That there is an expectation that God has. We want to be on the right side of that expectation, not on the wrong side. Verse 3. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. So again, this is speaking of God's people, God's prophets, God's priests that have polluted the sanctuary and done violence to the law. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning he brings his judgment to light. He fails not. But the unjust no, no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste. That none passes by. Their cities are destroyed. So that there is no man. That there is no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. So when you see what I've done to the heathen nations, surely my own people will fear me. Surely you will receive instruction. Verse 7. So their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever, I punish them. 
but they rose early and corrupted all their doing. So, brethren, this is history. This happened with the people of God. It is in the nature of man. Just being in the covenant community doesn't make us immune to these wrong attitudes and wrong behaviors. And God was hoping that his people would repent. But they, they rose up early. This is something they were eager to do. Got up early and corrupted all their doings. Therefore, wait you upon me, says the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination, this is his determination, is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So we see here in this prophecy about the the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Trumpets, the return of Christ, that the whole earth is under judgment. And God's people are no exception. That God is so disappointed with Jerusalem that they are included in the judgment that God is bringing on on the nation. Let's look at this a bit further, this, this, this attitude of God's people in Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. We see here, brethren, there is sort of this um, double-edged or, or it's kind of a tricky situation that God's people are in. You know, the people of Judah are, are hated. Israel is hated because they are God's people. They're very clearly, we are the covenant people. And you have people trying to be imposters, other people trying to say that they are Israel. You have people trying to destroy them. There's a hatred around being God's people. But... There's also a seduction in being God's people, where the people of God become arrogant. The people of God seem to feel that, they, that we are privileged above everyone else, and we can behave however we like. But these prophecies regarding the Day of Trumpets make it clear, God is looking for righteousness, and specifically righteousness from his people. And there are no exceptions. So, so how can we be part of Christ's return if we have the attitudes that he's coming to crush. And look at Jeremiah 7, this dialogue with Jeremiah and God's people. Jeremiah 7 and verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So as people come in to worship God, stand there and proclaim there this word. So this is a a proclamation now to God's people who are coming to worship him. So uh, as they're on their way to worship me, stand in the way and proclaim this. Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So here are the righteous people coming to worship God. And we're going to have Jeremiah stand at the gate. And as they're coming in to worship God, proclaim this to the people of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Speaking back to the the covenant, we look in Deuteronomy, there was a covenant that God made that said, if you do this, you can dwell in the land. I'll bring you into this promised land, and if you do these things, you can dwell there. 
But if you do the things of the people that I'm wiping out, if you do those practices, the land will eject you. So amend your ways according to the covenant, and you can dwell in this place. Do not trust in lying words. So somebody is lying to them. Somebody is preaching, but the words are lying words. Don't trust in these lying words. Saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, we're the people of God. We're the church of God. We're the house of God. This is the house of God. Take comfort in knowing this is the house of God. Jeremiah is standing at the gate as they're coming into worship saying, don't trust in these words. These are lying words. Somebody's lying to you. If you feel safe that you're the people of God, somebody's lying to you. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you don't oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and, shed, and don't shed innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place. So, so being called the church of God, being called the house of God, that's not enough. So there's certain behaviors that Jeremiah is telling them, look, I know you're engaging in these behaviors. And if you're engaging in these behaviors, what you call yourself is up to you. It has nothing to do with God. God is looking at your conduct. God is looking at your character. God is looking at how you think. That's what, that's what God is concerned about. Being called the people of God is not, is not what's going to save you. So if you change your, if you thoroughly repent, thoroughly change, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers, forever and ever. This is yours, and you can have it forever. But change. Don't, don't oppress the, 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 the fatherless and the widow. Behold, verse 8, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. And so, by extension, the question for us is, we're called the church of God. We're called the church of God. Do we take comfort in this name? Does the name actually matter? Or is God actually looking at our behavior? Is that what matters? So what we call ourselves, Church of God International, CGI, Burlington Congregation, whatever we want to call ourselves, that's great. God is saying it's irrelevant. What is relevant is how we treat each other and how we treat God. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. In other words, we're God's people. And God will neither do good nor evil. He'll just accept. Whatever we give him, he'll accept. Isn't it great that we give God an hour or two on the Sabbath? He should be grateful. You know, if this is our attitude, God is saying, this, this, this just isn't it. It's our whole life. How do we live? What's, what's our perspective of the covenant that we're in? this agreement that we have with God. Are we delivered to do all these abominations? Is this house, which is called by my name, has it become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. But go you now 
to my place, which was in Shiloh. So here's the instruction. Go and take a look at Shiloh. Remember Shiloh? My name was there. Go and take a look at Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. So God's name was not always in Jerusalem. First it was in Shiloh, and then it was moved to Jerusalem. So go and take a look at Shiloh, where I placed my name, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And and by extension, what we can do as God's people today, the covenant community, is we can look at the covenant that God had with Israel, and we can see what did God do with Israel, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. They were called by God's name. They were God's people. What did God do to them? And and I think we should have some fear, some concern that we are doing right by God. Go and take a look at Shiloh, he tells them, where I set my name at first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord God, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you heard not, and I called you, but you answered not, therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein you trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. So I've already judged the northern tribes, and now I'm going to do to the southern tribe the very same thing, because uh, you have not repented. So this is Old Testament. Let's, let's, as we wrap up, brethren, let's look at the New Testament. And specifically, let's look at the instruction that Paul gave to the congregation in Thessalonica. So First Thessalonians. So the the young people of the youth were looking at the general epistles, which are epistles to all of the congregations of the time. This is an epistle now specifically to the congregation in in Thessalonica. So 1 Thessalonians, and look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. So this is now specific instruction to the New Testament church. Okay, So maybe you were thinking, oh, Adrian, that's Old Testament. Can we, can we give the Old Testament a break? Okay. Let's look at the New Testament. Here it is. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. So you, you are familiar with the plan of God. You understand that the Feast of Trumpets is the next major event to happen. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, and this is the same pattern we saw through the minor prophets, as well as through Jeremiah, when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child. Now, I don't personally know this, but I know when my wife was uh, pregnant with our kids, we didn't know when the labor would begin but it comes suddenly. and it, Is that right? It came suddenly? <laughs> so it comes suddenly, and then suddenly there's this, there's this great pain, and then there's the delivery of the child. So in the same way, the, the, the earth 
is pregnant with the return of Christ. It's pregnant. We're waiting for these labor pangs to come. And that's how it's going to be, as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, this is now the church, you're not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. We're not in, we understand the plan of God. We're not in darkness. We, we know what God is doing. We understand that this is coming up now to the time of ingathering. And we're to be a part of this ingathering. We're to help Christ reconcile the whole world to himself. So we're not in darkness. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So we should be sober people. And our young people going back into school, again, we're in a society that's just declining. Its, it's moral standards are declining. Everything is declining. It's getting worse and worse. But you're children of the light. And so we commend you that you're able to navigate through all of this and, and maintain your morality. And that's what's critical here. And then we are the same. We have to maintain our morality. It's amazing. Um, just golfing this week and just hearing the language of business people. So what? You missed the ball. It didn't go where you thought it would. Uh, but the language, it's just its unbelievable. The, the, the standards are just dropping. But we're not, we're, we're, we have to watch, watch ourselves primarily and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunk in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a character that we're developing that we're going to escape the wrath that's coming. To obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, so whether we live until his return or we die before then, we should live together with him. Now, this is where I really want us to focus now, brethren, as a congregation. <clears throat> Let's now focus on these instructions given to the church in Thessalonica and by extension to all of us. He says, now, therefore, comfort yourselves together. Edify one another, even as also you do. And I think that that's something that right from the beginning, we were very clear that edification is something we're all responsible for. Edification is not something that the ministers do. Edification is something that everybody in the body does for the body. Every one of us have gifts. Every one of us have talents. Every one of us have abilities. And we're to edify one another. And here the church at Thessalonica was doing that. He's telling them, edify one another, even as also you do. So the church is made up of empowered individuals that love the body, that care about the body. And, and everybody does something to edify the body. So he's saying, continue to do that. Keep that mindset. Keep building up the body. Verse 12. Now he's going to beg them to do something. And we beg you, brethren, 
Now he's begging. To know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So this is a, this is a plea that the apostle is making to the brethren. So clearly, there was a problem. There were some that perhaps didn't want to acknowledge that there's anybody over them in the Lord. And, and this is no different than our churches today. That we have brethren that don't believe that there's any such thing as oversight. And here the apostle is making it very clear there is oversight. And not only is there oversight, but I'm begging you to be aware and to know, be familiar with those who are over you in the Lord. And what do they do? They admonish you. So we as brethren edify one another, but there's an oversight function for admonishing. And this word admonish is the Greek word netheteo, and it means to put in mind, by implication to caution you, or to reprove gently, to warn. So there's a warning function in the body, and it's coming from those that have oversight. And those that have oversight are laboring. This is, this is not easy work. They're, they're really working hard to do this. And he's begging the brethren to know them. Because we know among human beings, we don't want to be told what to do. We don't want anybody over us. And here the, the apostle is saying, be aware of them. Because this is their function. And verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love. Why? For their work's sake. So in order for them to do their work, there's a love that the brethren have to have for them and and an esteem so that their work can be effective. And be at peace among yourselves. So I think, brethren, we have, I think it's safe to say, we have achieved this here. That there is a recognition that we do have elders a plurality of elders, but you know, we're not here to oppress. We're here to help. We're here to edify. We're here to feed, to nourish. And, and I certainly think I can speak for Murray in saying we certainly feel a love and a, an attitude of warmth and respect, and thank you for that. But, but the point that I really want to make in this passage, brethren, is in verse 14. So verse 11, we're to edify one another. Verses 12 and 13, we should recognize the eldership which is over us. But now is an exhortation. So first he was begging us to recognize those that are over us in the Lord for their work's sake. But now in verse 14 is an exhortation. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. So this word warn is the exact same word he used earlier to say that the elders are over you to admonish you, to, to put you in remembrance, to gently nudge you, to, to put you in mind of certain things. Well, the very function that the elders are doing of admonishing, he's saying you, you have that function too in the body. And he's exhorting you as brethren to warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. And it is this unruliness that is in view on the Day of Trumpets. The Day of Trumpets is a day all about unruliness. It is the day when Christ returns with overwhelming force to stamp out unruliness. 
that that same sort of overwhelming force that we see with the, the passenger jets here, here in Toronto, where you see a whole SWAT team storm the plane with overwhelming force to put down unruliness, where we just see this week two CF-18 jets deployed from Quebec to force a flight that was on its way to Cuba to turn around and escort it to get it to land in Toronto, where these two girls who were being unruly could be met with overwhelming force. And now, in fact, just this week as well, there was, I don't know if you heard of these uh, knee defenders. Have you heard of the knee defender? Yeah. So the knee defender is this little device, it's probably about this big, that when you're flying, if you want to work on your laptop, and then the person in front of you suddenly puts their seat back, it could bang your knees, it could damage your laptop, so you can get this little device and you put it in the tray in front of you and it prevents the person in front of you from being able to put back their chair. So this week, uh, an American flight, somebody, it's $20, so in 1995, you can buy these knee defenders. So he put these knee defenders in place and the woman in front of him was trying to put her seat back and she couldn't. So she turned around and asked him to remove the knee defenders. And he wouldn't. So she called for the flight attendant who asked him to remove it, and he wouldn't. So the woman in front got up, took some water, and threw it in his face. And then they got into a big argument, and again, they were met with overwhelming force because of this unruly behavior. And in fact, there's actually a law that speaks about unruly behavior, so they're being charged with unruliness. And, and so we're seeing this unruliness in society, and this is what the Feast of Trumpets is all about. Christ is coming with overwhelming force to crush unruliness. And here what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians, the apostle, to the Gentiles, here speaking to the Thessalonians, is he's talking about the ruly and the unruly. He's saying, as a church, be ruly. Recognize who have, those who have the rule over you. Recognize them and love them and cherish them because it's a function in the body. But you have a function as well. When you see unruliness, it's not a Christian characteristic. Unruliness does not, should not be named among Christians. Christians are all about being ruly. We, we accept ruliness. We're not unruly people. So when we see unruliness in the body, it is the function of every member to warn them. Brother to brother, gently admonish them. Not, not to come down hard on them, but gently admonish them that that's not Christian conduct. And I bring this up because we are hosting the feast this year. And the feast is the celebration of God's festivals. And this, these fall festivals are the, the image, the picture, the vision of the whole world being reconciled to Christ. The whole world coming under Christ's rule. Okay? But we're seeing in our society... This, this degradation of standards and this increase of unruliness. It's, it's everywhere. Don't be surprised, brethren, if we come across unruliness at the feast. Okay? This should not shock or amaze us. But let it not be named among us. Okay? Things go wrong. When you bring so many people together, things go wrong. And, and let us not be at all, as the host congregation, guilty of any form of unruliness. 
if anything, let us be the example of, of ruliness. If I, can, I, can I make up that word, ruliness? So the opposite of unruliness. So we, we want to be the example of order, the example of submission, the example of mutual respect. You know, this man that, that put the knee defender in his seat, all he had to do was tap the lady on the shoulder and say, I'm just going to be working for a little while. Would it be okay with you if, I, if you didn't put your seat back? Just give me 45 minutes. It's just something I'm working on. And, and that, that would be so easy, right? And, and as a Christian, if she said, well, you know, I'm really tired and I really need to stretch out, as a Christian with Christian ethics, we would say, okay, no problem. Maybe when you're finished, let me know because I really would like to get some work done. Or maybe we could swap seats or whatever. But we could work it out, not allowing things to escalate. So at the feast, brethren, as the hosts, let us not engage in any unruly behavior, but let us not be surprised by it. If it happens, it may not happen. But we have people who are young in the faith. We have people who are stressed out at work. We have people who are not necessarily being taught what the Christian characteristics are. And so sometimes you'll see and hear things in the church that might surprise you. But here it says, gently admonish, those that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. So again, we've had incidents at the feast in, in the past where brethren have been fighting and arguing with service staff. You know, the hotel staff are being met with confrontational attitudes of God's people. What does that do for their perspective on the church? So we're all, we're all there as a church, and all it takes is for one person to give somebody in the world the attitude of they call themselves Christians. You know, if that's Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. So let's make sure that we set the example and we're patient toward everybody. And, and again, the point of this is this, that Christ is coming to crush with overwhelming force unruliness. It can't be in us. If we're going to join him, if we're going to be the saviors, if we're going to help the world come under Christ, then on the day of trumpets when he returns, if we're full of unruly character, how is it possible that we can be a part of that, that we can be a part of that uh, reconciliation process? I, I don't see it happening. And just because we call ourselves the church of God, that's no protection. The protection is in our conduct. The protection is in our character. So let's, let's conclude here, brethren, beginning in verse 15. <clears throat> See that none render evil for evil unto any man. So it doesn't matter whether it's a person in the world, whether it's a brother or a sister. Whatever happens, we just accept it. And we demonstrate Christ's character. We don't retaliate. You know, this escalation of this plane just over these knee defenders, uh, it was unnecessary. You, you, one didn't have to render evil for evil. And this is what we have to be aware of. But ever follow after that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. So, so the apostle found it necessary to say to the congregation, don't render evil for evil among yourselves. So just because you're the church of God, it doesn't make us immune from evil and from subjecting to each other to evil. And if we are, as the church of God, subjected to evil, we mustn't retaliate with evil. Instead, 
we must be patient to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is God's will. That when we develop this kind of character, he can use us. He can use us to teach the whole world. He can use us as examples, as lights to the whole world. This is his will concerning us. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. This, this is when we are, we're on the right side of God. When we have this kind of conduct and this kind of character. Then the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body, be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.